This is Cancer from A to Z, Episode 3, Radiology with Dr. Corinne Derdulian. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer from A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Hey, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Corinne Derdulian on the show today. She is someone that I've known for a really long time, and we would see each other pretty much every morning passing by one another in the parking lot at our children's school. And we would sometimes talk about how could we collaborate. And when I told her I was starting a podcast, she was really excited. So I'm so glad that she decided to be a guest on the show. So let me tell you a little bit about Corinne. She is a clinical professor of radiology at UCLA Geffen School of Medicine and and an adjunct clinical professor at USC Keck School of Medicine. And she grew up in Texas, where she attended the University of Texas at Austin and majored in liberal arts, as well as a concentration in Spanish, but then decided that she wanted to go to medical school, which she did at the University of Texas at Houston Medical School. After medical school, she decided to stay in Houston and trained in radiology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So Corinne has been very well trained, but Texas wasn't green enough for her. So she wanted to go somewhere after that where it was a little bit greener and there were endless trees. So she decided to head to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where she completed an abdominal imaging fellowship. And she stuck around for about seven more years and became the chief of imaging at the VA Medical Center in Salisbury, North Carolina. And while she was there, she built a multi-specialty department and started the body intervention service, as well as several cancer screening and treatment programs. But then Southern California came calling and she moved to Southern California in 2012, where she joined the faculty at USC until about earlier this year. She is currently a radiologist at the VA Medical Center in Los Angeles, and she's committed to improving radiology care for veterans. She has revised all of the MRI protocols and many of the CT protocols for imaging of the abdomen and pelvis, as well as adding new protocols while practicing at the VA Medical Center. So guys, I am thrilled to have her on the show today, and I think that you were really going to enjoy this episode. So let's get right to it. Okay, Corinne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So I wanted to start off by just asking you, you know, what's your background in, and how did you get to radiology? So tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born overseas, but I grew up in Texas, so I consider myself a Texan. And I was um, always drawn to medicine because um, I just really liked the idea of helping people. And it was funny because I was, you know, I was trying to decide growing up between, oh, should I pursue medicine? Should I pursue business? Should I pursue law? 
I just really like the mission of what doctors do. And sometimes the mission of what other professions do is not always in the best interest of the greater good. And I wanted to contribute to the greater good. So that's hopefully what I'm doing now. And so in college, I went to University of Texas at Austin. And, you know, in college, I was pre-med and liberal arts, which I feel like gave me like a really well-rounded education and ability to learn about other, you know, things in life and cultures and literature. And, you know, it was a very well-rounded program. And then, you know, went to medical school at University of Texas at Houston, and I was drawn to radiology. I'm a radiologist. I was drawn to radiology, radiology because I felt like it was very much like uncovering a mystery. Like what's wrong with the patient? The patient is coming in with X, Y, and Z symptoms. You know, sometimes it may be obvious what's like, what could be going on with the patient, but sometimes and many times it's not obvious. And so the role of the radiologist is, is to look at the imaging, whatever the imaging is, and find the abnormality and help the clinician who's seeing the patient diagnose the patient. And sometimes it's one piece of the puzzle and sometimes it's a majority of the puzzle. So it really depends on, you know, what each patient is going through. And so that's what really drew me to radiology. And so I was lucky enough to match in residency and train and here I am. Wow. I think that's really interesting. And I like the, you know, the part where you said that you actually had thought about law for a minute, because I did too. I thought I thought about law and then I kind of changed my mind and decided <laughs> to go the, the medicine route. Yeah, I remember in, in medical school, I had a friend who was wanting to go into radiology. And then when I did residency, they went into radiology. And I was always impressed with the people who decided to go into radiology, because that's a lot of anatomy. <laughs> it's just a lot of anatomy to remember. So what was that like for you in terms of studying? You know, it's interesting because I found anatomy as a first year medical student to be exceptionally difficult because there's so much to know. But I found radiology anatomy to be a lot more interesting. And it may be because it's more not offensive, but like living anatomy. You know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. before like when you're when you're dissecting a cadaver, it's a little bit more you know, arduous because you're trying to dissect each different fiber basically in the body. It's a lot more difficult, you know, all of the heart, you know, muscles and all of that. That's very, very difficult to learn. But radiology anatomy, I consider it to be more living anatomy because it's being tied in with the physiology of the patient. It's being tied in with the clinical history of the patient. And Mm -hmm. so when you look at a scan or you look at an x-ray and you're like, oh, this patient has a cough and you're looking at a chest x-ray or chest CT, then that anatomy kind of comes to life. And mm-hmm. I find that to be interesting as far as keeping me, you know, engaged in my in in my endeavors to be a radiologist. Right. And so when you train or when you when you trained, um, did they have you kind of reading all types of scans and pediatrics as well as adult? Yeah. So in residency, we cover all of radiology. We cover every subspecialty. We cover you know, in utero, t- from the earliest moments of when you can see an embryo, you know, under ultrasound, to, you know, every age, a- age group, every part of the body, you know, literally head to toe. And so and every modality and what modality is, is type of imaging, for example, there's there are x rays, there is CAT scan, there is MRI, there is PET scan. So there are different modalities. In addition to just reading scans too we learn how to do procedures. So these are procedures that may have once required surgery, 
that over the last, you know, so many decades have been basically transitioned to non-surgical procedures where we can go in just with a tiny needle into the skin and do biopsies. We can drain out fluid collections. And then also our interventional radiologists do really amazing work with the bile duct systems and the vascular systems of the patient. So there is a lot of complexity there that is just as complex as very high-level surgery that is now done under radiology. And so when it, when it comes to like, you, know, you have radiologists that are strictly interventional and then those that are not, or kind of, they can kind of go back and forth. It depends. Every practice is different. So the radiologists who have specialized fellowship training in intervention, it's called vascular and interventional radiology, or VIR, if you know, is the acronym basically for it, or the abbreviation for it. And so those radiologists do very, very complex procedures for the, you know, for the most part. It, depending on how their practice is set up, they may also read scans, just like you know, most general radiologists would read scans just depends on their practice and how they're set up. Also, in some practices, they may or may not do the biopsies. They may actually do higher level of cases. And so the biopsies may be done by the other radiologists who are you know, chest and abdomen specialists, for example. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of overlap with procedures. Also with radiologists who do musculoskeletal or bone and joint radiology, like they do they can do some of the bone and joint procedures instead of, for example, orthopedic surgery. So they mm-hmm. can do some of the diagnostic and therapeutic procedures, you know, radio- under you know radiologic guidance, whether it be ultrasound or CAT scan, for example. And so there is there is overlap basically between the specialties, or there can mm. be. Okay. And so, do you subspecialize, or do you specialize in a particular modality, or? Yes. Yeah, so. Site? Um, my additional fellowship training after residency is in abdominal imaging. And so, and typically it's the abdomen and pelvis, but it also includes the chest and it also includes ultrasound of the whole body. So, you know, I didn't do, for example, neuroradiology, which focuses on the brain, you know, head and neck anatomy and spine. So like there are different subspecialties that cover different types of anatomy. So mine is mainly abdomen, pelvis, but also including the chest a lot of the time and ultrasound of of the whole body. And it also included doing the procedures such as biopsies and like fluid drainages, for example. So that was also covered under my, that's also covered under my subspecialty. And so do you like doing the procedures? I love it. I absolutely love it. Yes. (laughs) So I order a lot of scans and that is definitely one thing that I think the patients get worried about it's when they're getting a lot of scans. So usually the cancer patients are going to get CAT scans or PET scans or MRIs. And, you know, I get questions all the time about, well, how much radiation is that? And even though the amount of radiation that I'm giving to patients is a whole lot more, they do get worried about, about that. So when it comes to these scans, such as CT scans, you know, what, what do you tell patients who that you come across who are quite worried about maybe, you know, the number of scans that they're getting and, you know, how much radiation they get from a CT scan? Um, that's actually a great question. And it's actually a very complex question. I think the easiest way to sort of dilute that down is to basically say that if it's a medically necessary examination, then you shouldn't worry about the radiation dose. 
you should just get the scan. So unless mm-hmm. it's an MRI, which does not use, you know, uh, radiation, you know, x-rays are very, very minimal radiation. CAT scans are a lot more radiation. However, the CAT scan techniques that we use nowadays are significantly, deliver significantly less radiation dose than they did perhaps, you know, 5, 10, and 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Significantly less because of um, the different scanning techniques and the different techniques they use to to adjust the dosing per patient so that, mm-hmm. you know, you're not overdosed or quote underdosed with radiation. It's appropriately dosed to see your imaging, to see your anatomy without giving you more than, more than you need. That being said, I can't emphasize enough. If, um, if a doctor feels like you need to scan to identify your medical problem or to follow up your cancer or to follow up an infection or to, you know, see what else is going on, Sometimes symptoms are unexplained by, you know, clinical examination, and we need to, you know, examine further. Patients should not be hesitant to get a scan. So our literature shows us that, you know, even though CAT scans have increased significantly, there is not an overwhelming increase in cancer that's related to CAT scan exposure, and even in pregnant women. And so even though there is a limitation, uh, there's a general limitation on what they think pregnant women should receive if they have to get a CAT scan, for example. A lot of these are theoretical estimates that are based on the radiation data that we have from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. So it's extrapolated data, if you will, that or estimations that they've taken you know, from individuals who are exposed to nuclear material. But that being said, it's not, it hasn't been proven that if you get over a certain amount of CAT scans, you know, you're going to get developed cancer that has never been established. It is nice to just kind of generally know that you shouldn't get more CAT scans than you need. But if your doctor feels like you need a CAT scan or an x-ray or any other imaging study like a PET scan to diagnose your problem, then you should get it. And so that should not deter you. That fear should not deter you because the fear is actually more theoretical than actual. And so, you know, we don't see an increased incidence of cancer related to CAT scan exposure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I try to, you know, tell my patients that as well. And especially with me, when I'm giving much higher doses of, of radiation therapy, that, you know, the most important thing is that we, you know, have a good sense in terms of what's going on with their cancer and the imaging allows us to do that. So if we were to take a step back, I know we, we you know, kind of jumped into CAT scans and things like that. Can you just in a very simple way tell us the difference between, you know, MRI and CT, like maybe versus PET scan versus a bone scan? Sure. Let me start off first with x-rays because that's what most people are familiar with. You know, mm-hmm. you go to the doctor, you, you know, your kid breaks a leg or, a, or an arm, you know, you get an x-ray or you have a cough, you get a chest x-ray or your neck hurts, you get a neck x-ray. So x-rays are used, basically the are x-ray beams that are used to um, image your bones and image, you know, parts of your body, including your chest, including your abdomen. And it's, it looks at predominantly bones. It can also li- li- look a little bit at some of the soft tissues in a very, very general type of way, not in any specific type of way. So sometimes you can see, for example, the kidney outline on an abdomen x-ray, but, and for the lungs, it's really good because you can actually see if there's something frequently in the lungs or if the lungs are collapsed or if there's fluid around the lungs, you can see that very easily on an x-ray. So x-rays, again, mainly a bone anatomy, some soft tissue anatomy, uh, that's what x-rays are good for. 
CAT scans are basically very concentrated x-rays. So it may be an x-ray to an order of magnitude of 100 to 200 times. And that shows you extremely detailed anatomy of whatever it is you're imaging. And with mm-hmm. CAT scans, the resolution is really, really great. The resolution, we, we can image patients as little as a tenth of a millimeter if we want to, or a quarter of a millimeter. We can get that to that level of we can get to that level of resolution. So we can literally, to see every inch of your body is an overstatement. We can see mm-hmm. literally every sub-millimeter in your body with a CAT scan. And so, you know, it delivers a lot more radiation, but it gives us really superior anatomy as far as what we can visualize in the body. An MRI does not use radiation to image. An MRI actually uses hydrogen protons to basically, the magnet basically stimulates the hydrogen in, in the body, the hydrogen protons. And so what that does is it creates a signal and, it's, and the signal is various shades of gray. And the signal comes across as different shades of gray and that's what um, elucidates the anatomy. And it's, I don't even know how they figured out how to do an MRI yeah. because just the, if you think about the technology, it's impossible to, to think about how someone said, okay, we're gonna use, you know, uh, we're going to use a magnet to stimulate the hydrogen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, your right? Body. It's like crazy. Right. Um, yeah. And so, and MRIs take a lot longer to perform. You know, CAT scans take a couple of seconds and MRIs can take, and you know, they can take a few minutes, but usually most MRI scans take anywhere from 20 minutes to 45 minutes, rarely an hour, but they can just depending on what you're imaging, what part of the body you're imaging. And if you're giving the IV contrast or the quote unquote dye that we use, you know, to light up the organs and the blood vessels and the dye that we use uh, for MRI is different from the dye that we use with CT, just to Mm -hmm. also put that out there. PET scans are nuclear medicine studies that basically use like a radioactive material that is put intravenously. It also goes to areas that have a high metabolism. So it's, they're usually, most of the PET scans that we do rely on glucose metabolism. Mm-hmm. So the, the radioactive agent is called FDG and it goes into areas that have high glucose metabolism. But there are other agents that we, we now use that are more targeted for specific types of tumors like prostate and mm-hmm. neuroendocrine tumors, for example. So there are different types of PET scans that we do, but it's basically a scan using you know, radioactive material to light up areas that might be of concern. And many times we, we look at the PET in conjunction with the CAT scan to really give us good anatomy. And also now a new technology that's been emerging is a, a fusing, if you will, or combining PET scan with MRI to also give superior detail to the, to the anatomy. So that's another option. Ultrasounds are use no radiation. Ultrasounds use sound waves to image different parts of the body. We use ultrasound a lot in kids because there's no radiation. So if we can, if a kid comes in with appendicitis, we really try our best to look for the appendix with ultrasound first before Mm -hmm. moving on to CAT scan because ultrasound is no radiation. Obviously, pregnant women get ultrasounds all the time. You know, babies can get ultrasounds to look at their kidneys and their bladders or their tummies. And, you know, obviously ultrasound of the abdomen is very common. Ultrasound of the blood vessels, like looking at your carotid arteries, for example, is very common. And that uses sound waves to image the, the, the tissues in your body. And then I don't want to go into too much detail with nuclear medicine. You mentioned also bone scans. And that also basically is using a radioactive isotope or radioactive material to go to areas of the bone that might be um, diseased. 
but also um, joints that are kind of overworked and have a lot of degenerative changes can also pick up that material. So then you have to be trained to know what's, you know, what's likely from an old trauma, like an old fracture versus what is, you know, from just a degenerative joint disease versus what could potentially be a tumor. So that takes, right. you know, that, that you learn in training, but that's the sort of the, the background of, of the bone scan. Now, do general or do radiologists read out PET scans and bone scans a lot, or is that mostly going to be like nuclear medicine doctors? Uh, it depends on the practice. I mean, you in radiology, you learn how to do nuclear medicine. So you can read all of these nuclear medicine scans. There are internists who go into nuclear medicine who do learn to read nuclear medicine studies. I don't have much experience with that. Just wherever I have been, wherever I have trained, you know, we read all the nuclear medicine studies, including all the PET scans, and then including the cardiac uh, nuclear medicine studies. And whatever practice that I've been in, the radiologists have read all the nuclear medicine scans, including my current practice. So I'm not, I know that there are nuclear medicine physicians who are not radiologists, but I don't know the extent of, right. of that. Right. Um, in my training, we had a combination of nuclear medicine physicians and radiologists reading nuclear medicine studies, but I think that just varies on institution to institution. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You touched upon one thing when you were talking about MRI that I'd like to just, you know, get your opinion about and expand on that a little bit, because I get questions in, from patients also concerned about the contrast that's given with MRI and the gadolinium. And patients asked me and quite a bit about the gadolinium and some of the things that they've read in the media about that contrast material. What do you think about that? So gadolinium is a fairly safe contrast agent. About in the last maybe 15 to 20 years, some literature emerged where there were patients who were getting a very rare disorder called NSF or nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. And it was tied to one, perhaps two of these significantly older MRI contrast agents, which are not used anymore. And in fact, for the most part, the newer contrast agents that we do use for MRI are not associated with nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. And so there are many different types of MRI or gadolinium compounds that are used. And there are different types of, they look at the, the, stabi the stability of the compounds and is it ionic? Is it not ionic? Is it macrocyclic? So these are just terminologies that are used to describe the compounds. But what is used currently today is very, very safe, and it tends not to what we call dissociate. So dissociate means that the molecule breaks apart. The molecule that makes up the molecules that make up the contrast break apart. And the contrast that we use today, they have stronger molecules that are bonded to each other that are less likely to kind of come apart and cause any, any harm. There has, I don't know if your patients have read this too, but there also has been in the literature that they found, oh, gadolinium deposition in brains, for example. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, they may do an autopsy and they may see, oh, this person had um, a little bit of gadolinium in their brain. So although that has been discovered, um, that has not been tied to my knowledge to any kind of adverse effects. Like this, it hasn't been tied to dementia or any other neurologic disorders or anything like that. And in my um, conferences that I've been to, where I've been to sessions specifically about gadolinium deposition in the brain and the people who were studying it in detail, in addition to what I've read about it, 
you know, everybody has said, look, if I had a child with a brain tumor and they need a scan every three months, I don't care about galvanic deposition mm. in the brain. This right. is just all, again, just the, it's an observation without any negative uh, clinical associations. And, you know, that right now they're just, they're exploring it, but there's no, there's, there's no clinical downside to it. So just to continue um, regarding gadolinium deposition in the brain, I mean, everyone who's researching this has told me, you know, physician as well as, you know, scientist has told me that, you know, if one of their family members or one of their children needed, you know, frequent MRI scans with contrast to elucidate tumors or other pathologies, they would not hesitate that, that the, you know, the findings that are of gadolinium in the brain, you know, that has not been shown to have any negative associations. Again, just to my point before, if you really need a scan to, you know, identify your cancer or follow it up or your infection or your inflam or your inflammation or something else that's going on, it, that's more important than any potential theoretical question of a risk from that scan, whether it be from the dye or whether it be from the scan itself. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Because it's super important that, you know, we have a full understanding in terms of you know, what's going on with especially the patients who have cancer when you're talking about the initial staging of it, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, restaging. So maybe after they've had chemotherapy or maybe after they've had chemotherapy and radiation to have a really good understanding in terms of what's going on with the cancer. And it tells us so much, you know, PET scans are really invaluable to me. I use them as part of my you know, planning with the radiation and just the fact that it gives me all of that information from head to toe that, you know, a CT kind of gives me the same thing, but obviously in a, in a different way. So I definitely use PET scans. I, I order all types of scans all the time. And, and it's funny because radiation oncology and radiology, we used to be together as a specialty many, right. many years ago. Yeah. And then right. we kind of we kind of split off. So I still, I still have, I still have a lot of people who think I'm a radiologist and, and I use, I have to use scans as part of my job on a daily basis. And I have to know kind of what I'm looking at, but of course I'm not a radiologist like yourself. And so I'm always on the phone because sometimes what you guys see on the scans is just amazing. It's so small. <laughs> and it's like, where is that? I'm like, I'm, so I have to call the radiologist. And I remember when I was in training, you guys sit in, you know, the dark rooms, right? And right. you're kind of in there looking at your scans and, and dictating. And I, I remember back in training, those radiologists would just, they they would kind of get a little annoyed, you know, <laughs> when you would like knock on the door. But and, you know, but I'm still kind of that way. I, I will call the radiologist and be like, hey, you know, because sometimes the radiologists are really good and they will put in the report, you know, the series number of the scan and the slice number where they're looking. And other times they don't. And so sometimes I have to call them and, you know, the radiologists are very nice. They're very nice. So that's good so, to yeah. hear. And I think that communication with the clinician who's ordering the study is invaluable because sometimes as as much detail as you might use in a report, sometimes you, you just can't replace that communication with the ordering physician. So when we need mm -hmm. to, we also call the ordering physician and tell them, look, this is what we're seeing or, or something might be really complicated and we, ne we need to talk it out because the report may be very complicated. And, right. and it's like, okay, this is what I'm seeing, but it could be three other things and here's why we need to talk about it kind of thing. And so, and also like trying to figure out, is there something else that you could do to help elucidate, you know, that, yeah. that, that difficulty better? 
I personally do use image numbers and slice numbers on my scans and my reports. Mm -hmm. Not all of my colleagues do, but most of them do. (laughs) So it's Mm -hmm. really, really helpful even to me when I'm following up a case when my colleague has done that. So that's to your point that that's very, not just for you guys, but for us too, who are used to seeing that anatomy and to seeing things that are a couple millimeters big, it's still important for us. I mean, our chest radiologists see lung nodules that are one millimeter. And yeah. so if you imagine, if you draw a line with a pencil, that's one millimeter. And you know, if you mm-hmm. draw a dot with a pencil, that's that's what our chest radiologists are seeing. And so yeah. it's like, we need to slice images on the scan to be demarcated so we can find them. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it is absolutely. important. Yeah, and you bring up a good point because sometimes, for instance, with some patients, you know, they have stage four cancer that has metastasized to the bones. And sometimes that cancer that's in the bones can either be cause lytic lesions or holes in the in the bone, or they can cause sclerotic lesions. And depending upon what's going on, sometimes it's hard to figure out, well, if you have a certain scan if you want to kind of get, you know, a better idea in terms of what's going on, you know, what type of scan would be best. So for instance, you know, just recently I have a, had a patient with sclerotic bone lesions and the bone marrow was a little bit, had changed a little bit on, on the CT scan that she had done. And it was just kind of hard to get a better sense in terms of what vertebral bodies were involved. So I had to call the radiologist and say, well, I'm thinking about getting, you know, either a PET scan or a bone scan, what's really going to be helpful. And so she was very helpful in terms of talking to me about, you know, that because this patient had lung cancer in terms of, you know, whether it was the PET scan was going to light up in the area and give me the information that I needed or whether getting either an MRI or a bone scan was was going to be better. So, yeah, I agree with you. Communication is is super important so that, you know, it helps me so that I'm not ordering an, a test that's not going to give me the information that I want. Um, and I'm sure you guys really would appreciate having probably a lot more history on what's going on with the, with the yeah. patient. Yeah, frequently we get scans and the history just says pain. We yeah. have no idea where the pain is, how how long it's been there, what part of the body, you know, right. is it, you know. And so, I mean, te- technically, you know, we try and look for everything and everybody, you know, but but it does help when we do get uh, more of a focused history so that we still have to look for everything and everybody, but then we need to also focus on, you know, the specific clinical question. So, yes. So, so when it comes to radiology, do you have any advice for patients who have, for all patients or specifically patients who have cancer when it comes to, you know, doctors ordering scans on them? Yeah, I think especially being a cancer patient or being a patient who has a condition that just requires a lot of scans, even some of our urologic patients with kidney and bladder issues, for example, or might be getting a lot of scans. I think that, you know, one thing that might help is to just keep a log, like keep like a little small notebook, you know, with you and just write down the date and the cats, if it's a CAT scan or a PET scan or an x-ray or whatever the scan is, ultrasound, et cetera. And then just write, I had an ultrasound of my left leg, or I had a, a PET scan, or I had a chest CT of, I had a set chest CT, I had an abdomen CT. So or I had an MRI of my brain. I think that just to kind of write that down mm-hmm. may help the patient just sort of remember, okay, this is what I've already had. Obviously, patients can access their medical records through the medical records office, through whatever you know practice 
um, or hospital system, you know, they're, they're going to, the thing with medical records is that they're so dense and there's a mm-hmm. lot of information. And sometimes you're going through a lot of sort of required demographic information, such as, oh, name and address and other hospital just sort of jargon before you actually get to the meat of what you're looking for. So I right. think it's easy sometimes, it might be easier to kind of write down in a book or in like a little notebook, okay, you know, February 2nd, you know, PET scan, you know, February 10th, chest x-ray, February 12th, ultrasound of the left leg, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you can kind of use when you get your medical records, you can kind of, if you need the medical records, you can kind of correlate that with what you already have written down. If you want to kind of compare, okay, this was the result of this scan that I had. That being said, it's everybody is different. Some people want to you know, want to document all of that, and some people don't, and they have the trust in their doctors, which I believe that they should, to you know follow that up and do you know keep keep up you know on, with all the scans that are being done and all the reports that are coming through for those, and to act on those appropriately. So mm-hmm. I think if people want to, they can keep a log, but they don't certainly don't have to, and that log is being kept you know by the radiology center doing the imaging, it's being kept in the patient's medical records. So it's just kind of whatever the patient feels comfortable with. One Mm -hmm. thing I will say, just as a patient myself, is when I go to the doctor, even though I am a doctor, and I already have a lot of background knowledge frequently about whatever it is I'm going in for, I always forget to ask questions. Mm -hmm. So I think writing down your questions beforehand, before you see the doctor, or if you have questions about your radiology test and you go and you maybe maybe ask the the technologist doing your scan the question. So I think writing questions down before your appointments, regardless of what type of appointment it is, I think that's also a good thing to do so that Mm -hmm. you have more of an understanding of what is going on with you, you know, clinically. Right. Right. Yes, that's very good advice. I I agree with that for sure. Anything else you want to talk about when it comes to radiology? Do you want to hear about my day? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't? Yeah. Walk us through your a typical day for you. I've I've had three different positions. So, and every day is actually a little bit different. So, for example, when I was working at USC at the you know, LA County at Peck also medical center, you know, we had different assignments on different days. So for example, and I used to work with a lot of residents and now I still work with residents, but fewer residents, you know, who I I teach and work with during the course of the day. And so for example, if I was assigned to procedures on at Keck, we would go in and we were responsible for all the biopsy procedures and all the drainage procedures. So all the fluid collections that need to be taken out of bodies and all the biopsies for all the, the lesions that we need to diagnose. Or if someone was having liver failure, we would biopsy the livers or the kidneys, for example. All of that was done by us. Plus, we would read all of the ultrasounds for the patients in the hospital, as well as the patients in the outpatient clinic. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, you know, a really busy day, very fulfilling day, but very busy day. Other days, I would focus more on just reading PET scan and MRI the whole day, some days I would do procedures under fluoroscopy. So fluoroscopy is sort of the real-time x-ray. So instead of the static x-ray that's, that's done by an x-ray technologist, when we do a procedure under fluoroscopy, like the patient might drink something like barium or another type of very not so good tasting liquid that like they might drink and we might look at their esophagus. And then we use the um, x-ray machine 
to look at their anatomy, but in a in a more dynamic way. So we kind of make little, we record little movie clips, if you will, of their anatomy and maybe how their esophagus is moving. And we can compare that before surgery to after surgery, for example. So every day is a little bit different. In my current position, you know, I'm still doing all of the same things, x-ray, fluoroscopy, procedures, ultrasounds, CAT scans, MRI, it's just kind of whatever's coming my way. And then, you know, from time to time, you know, I do a biopsy of something of a lesion somewhere in the body. And so, you know, it just depends on how your practice is set up. But your days are pretty much as you hit the ground running as soon as you get to work and boom, boom, boom till the work is done. So right. yeah. Well, that's a busy day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, you, you are doing quite a bit. But that sounds, I mean, it sounds like it's very rewarding. It's extremely rewarding because, I mean, you see so many different manifestations of disease. I learn a lot every day, even though I've been in practice now since 2005. So what is that? Over 15 years now, 16 years I've been in practice almost. And mm-hmm. I still see diagnoses that I've never seen before. You know, mm-hmm. every week I feel like I see something I've never seen before. And when I was mm-hmm. at, you know, LA County and, you know, USC Keck Medical Center, I felt like every day I was seeing something I've never seen before. Things that are very rare, things that are that aren't documented a lot in the medical literature because they're not very common. So I feel like there's so much room to grow for us as radiologists because even though we know a lot, we also are still learning a lot. And there's right. no way to know everything about every organ or or every body part. And so we're always, we're always learning. So that's what keeps it interesting. And it also Mm -hmm. keeps our mission because our mission is to see what is going on with the patient. How can we diagnose what's going on with the patient or help diagnose from a radiology standpoint, so that the referring clinician can then take that information and incorporate that with the other tests and the blood work and the physical exam and everything else mm-hmm. that's going on that um, the clinician is responsible for and you know knows and you know how do how do they put that together and how do we help them do that to best take care of our patients? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that probably most physicians and when it comes to any specialty, we rely heavily on radiology. I know I do. I, I couldn't do my job without, you know, the scans and, and having a radiologist read them. So super important. So I I really appreciate this, Corinne. This has been fabulous. This has been really good. So, so excited that you were able to do this with me tonight. Well, thank you for having me. It was It's so nice to talk about this with you together. And I think your mission as far as you know, treating cancer, there's nothing more noble than that and nothing more difficult than that. So I'm honored to be here with you and to share whatever I can with you and to collaborate anytime. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I know our patient, the patients are and caregivers and anybody who's been touched by cancer will find your information so, so valuable. So thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you in person again. Sounds great. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.